0: That's the reason why the majority of digital projects go south. 70% of digital initiatives fail. 90% of the improvements that we can make around health and care are outside of the hospital. We need to have governance routes that kind of assume failure, but say that that's okay as long as you spot it quickly. This is Finger on the Pulse, the National Health Executive Podcast, bringing you views Insights and conversations from leaders across the health sector. Presented by Louis Morris.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Thing Got on the Pulse podcast. Today I'm joined by Health Education England's Chief Digital and Information Officer, James Freed. I see that you've essentially worked in the health sector since near the turn of the millennium, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Why did you originally want to go into, you know, health? There's a bunch of reasons, right? But the
0: the real honest truth was... I didn't know what I wanted to do after knowing that I didn't want to be a bench scientist anymore. Mm -hmm. And I applied for a lot of different jobs and I ended up choosing the one that I felt I had the best background for. So I went from doing bench research in cancer and oncology to working in change management in hospitals for an organization called the Cancer Research Collaborative. So it was a, it was a disease area I knew really well. My dad was a doctor. I knew that the health and care system was one that was a good thing to do, it was an altruistic thing to do. But I didn't yeah. really have much beyond that. I mean, I, just to give you an idea, flavour of what else I applied for, I applied to be a communications lead on an anti-racism newsletter. I applied for MI5. I applied to be a teacher. What job did you want at MI5? It was a general applications process. I think there were about three jobs available, and I went onto the third day of uh, a selection process where about seventy people attended an exam at the same time. So there was a lot of demand for that job. I didn't get called back after the exam. Yeah. What
1: was Uh, the exam uh, like? What were you? What is an MI five exam? Oh right, so it's just like a personality uh, test. No, I mean it was
0: a it was a multi choice test. Uh-huh. um but there were lots of scenarios and then you were asked questions on the scenarios i thought this would be easy it's as much around your intuition as it is around logic there were yeah. clearly right answers but there wasn't an obvious way of getting to the right answer so um i did the test exams and everything seemed fine and i went to the real thing it's like i just don't i don't know the answers to these questions this is this is beyond me so um anyway obviously that was true because i didn't get through
1: in the end you ended up where you are it's not bad
0: I'll tell you what, I don't well, regret a single decision. Well, than the, than that, the, that is the goal, isn't it? It has been a bit of a zigzag. It's not as if I started off life saying I wanted to be a chief information officer and went for it. And yeah. actually, I don't think a CDIO is going to be my final job role. You know, What do you think it will be then? Do you have an inkling? Yeah. As you go through life, you develop uh, expertise, knowledge and passion. And my passion, which is the thing which should really drive where you end up more than anything else, I think, is around education, it's around digital, it's around public sector, it's particularly around health and care, and yeah. I've ended up migrating into the only organization that has significant agency in those all in all of those areas. And so I'm hoping that I'll end up with a brief in the new organization that enables me to do that.
1: I mean, to be fair, I was going to ask this later on, but I feel like I might as well ask it now. Against the backdrop of healthcare, everyone knows what digital means, but what does it mean to you? Does it mean a different thing to you versus like a mental health nurse?
0: Yeah, I I can't tell you how important a question this is. I'm so pleased you've asked it. I'm going to give you the answer, but I'm going to give you a a long way round (laughs) to it. In the Health and Care Digital Academy, we offer a service aimed at NHS boards. We do that because uh, having the right environment in organisations, health or care organisations or any other organisations is absolutely essential in order to extract the greatest value from digital data and technology. And the right environment is the environment that lets you get stuff done quickly whilst you do not compromise on safety. It's getting that balance between an environment that supports innovation and an environment that is safe. And getting that balance right is super hard. It requires delegating authority, but not delegating responsibility for the overall safety of an organisation. It's a really difficult thing to get right. And in those sessions, we spend the first half an hour every time having a discussion about what is digital. And the reason why we have to do that is because everyone comes with their own conceptions and those conceptions influence how they behave when a discussion about digital is entered into and that is so important at board level because we see people terrified of the word digital the d word it's actually antagonistic to senior leaders who do not have a digital background getting involved in a decision making process and that's the reason why the majority of digital projects go south 70 percent of digital initiatives fail that do not meet the promise that they set out to achieve Which is a scary stat. Now, invariably, boards do settle on a definition for board, which is not a million miles away from the definitions that I use. I am personally uh, massively uh, influenced by a gentleman called Tom Loosemore previously at the Government Digital Service, now works at a consultancy called Public Digital, who back in 2017 put out a little post with a definition, his definition of digital, and it's kind of become the definition for the entirety of government and now the NHS as well. And I'm not going to be able to remember, I won't do it justice, I'm not going to remember it word for word, but it's something along the lines of the behaviours, the culture, the processes, the practices and the technologies of a 21st century internet enabled society using those things to meet your customers your users raise expectations and there's a few things in there you know the absolute focus on the fact that we offer services to people who use those services and that that providing more value to those people is our ultimate aim kind of regardless yeah. of whether you use digital technologies or not it's just the digital technologies are increasingly the way in which we are able to do that and that's people's expectations are changing they are being raised by the use of the internet and increasingly mobile devices and other technologies our expectations of all services have massively increased over the last decade and we need to keep on meeting them as they continue to rise and then finally this is not just about technology technology is in there but it's a part and actually it's a small part the biggest part of this is attitude, philosophy, approach, but also process and practice. You know, the sorts of things that we can learn from fast paced, fast moving organisations and how we can apply those to any organisation anywhere because we all offer service to someone.
1: On the whole digital maturity stuff, then, what would you say, like an a trust, for example, what do they need to have in the short term in terms of their digital transformation chains? Do they need a fully fledged strategy? Is it just having an electronic health record? What would you say they need by you know, on the next six
0: months. So because it's so complicated, it's so easy to start in the middle and those things are in the middle. So an electronic patient record, it's important, but it's a bit of kit at the end of the day. I like the analogy of building, the building industry. If you want a house and then you go to a builder to talk about building your house and if that builder then talks to you about the quality of the hammers he's going to use, he or she's going to use, you might be a little bit disinterested. Yeah, I'm interested in the end result. I'm interested in how the house is going to look, how big it is, how many rooms it's going to have. You know, does it have central heating? You know, what service do I get from you as a builder? How long is it going to take and how much is it going to cost? Those are the things I want to know. I don't really care about the hammers you're using to get you there. Now, the EPR is a super important hammer, but it's a hammer at the end of the day. It's a tool. The reason why it's important is it enables organisations to collect a substantial amount of data and make better decisions. Data is not there for its own validity. It's there to help people make better decisions. And it's a bit of the technical infrastructure that, you know, some organisations still don't have. And if they don't have it, they're unable to understand exactly how they're doing their work. I remember chatting to a guy called Andrew Greenway, one of Tom Lucemore's colleagues, actually. And we were talking about our own digital strategy within my own organisation, Health Education England. And we were getting some advice about how we might couch this. And he was saying you know what, you've got to pick something that really sings to people and whether it's being a more user-centered organization or whether it's being a more data-driven organization. And he picked those two up because they're really important. They're things that you can latch onto. He said, it doesn't really matter as long as you find a way of getting people on board and taking those moves into what is a fundamentally different way of thinking about why you are there to do your job and what you're trying to achieve. And so for me, If you're talking about the digital maturity of, say, an NHS trust and things like what good looks like are really important documents to help people understand, you know, the comprehensive nature of what that digital maturity journey might look like. If you're looking for one first step, for me, it's a move from calling yourself a National Health Service Institution provider and being (laughs) a National Health (laughs) Service Institution provider. And by that, I mean, act as if you deliver services. Services are offered to users, often patients in the NHS, and understanding what their needs are, measuring the value that you deliver to those users and setting up an environment that enables you to deliver more value to those users tomorrow than you did today as quickly as possible is really, in a nutshell what maturity is digital maturity is just a part of that it has to be a part of every single organization nowadays because there is a set of tools called digital that enable you to do that much better than you ever have done before but they're just a set of tools digital maturity is no different to maturity really and being a mature organization means you're able to meet your users needs better in the shortest amount of time
1: Is that then like eking into the sort of proactive nature of healthcare rather than reacting and treating people you offer them a service? Actually, you're going to figure out what they actually need beforehand, if you know what I mean. Is that a good comparison, would you say? When you're talking about holistic needs for a
0: person or a population, and we're starting to talk about population health and public health when you're talking about being proactive or preventative, then necessarily you need to start considering what someone's needs might be in the future. There are lots of reasons for preventative medicine preventative activities. Some of those are around stopping the patient becoming ill and developing needs that they don't want to have. No one wants to be ill. Some of those are around saving money. It's far cheaper to prevent an illness than it is to treat it afterwards. And 90% of the improvements that we can make around health and care are outside of the hospital. And so it's a difficult question to answer, Louis, because different organisations have got different levels of agency. Prevention as a whole is super important. It's the most important area, really. If you look at vaccination programmes, for instance, public health programmes in general are just that give you so much more return on investment than any delivery of healthcare to ill people. But the hospital may not always be the best place to offer
1: those preventative services from. Speaking of vaccinations, it's slightly. Obviously, the pandemic was horrible, but it was one of the silver linings of it is it sort of accelerated this digital transformation because it forced people to adopt all these technologies.
0: It forced people to adopt some of these technologies. Well,
1: yeah, it's an important distinction. So the reason why
0: I make that distinction is that the the silver lining that you referred to, there's more than one. There were lots of silver linings, but to the pandemic was that it forced organisations to do things differently in a way that they were not prepared to do before the pandemic. So, in particular, rate of change around telemedicine, Health education England was privileged enough to work with Eric Topol and publish the topple review back in two thousand and nineteen. Yes. This was a review of ten different technologies, and the impact of those technologies on the way in which the health and care workforce will work, and thus the impact on education. That's the reason why Health Education was asked to look into it. As part of that, we looked at those technologies and what the evidence was saying around adoption rates. Telemedicine, a fairly simple technology, right? We're using it, we're not telemedicine, but we're using Teams to record this podcast. You know, people have been using video, video meeting type technologies for a long time, not that long, I suppose, but certainly in other industries, we just didn't have the same uptake in health and care. And there were lots of reasons for that. Health and care is more complex than any other industry. But the prediction in the Topol review is that we'd hit about 80% prevalence of telemedicine technologies in health and care by 2030 or 2035. We actually hit that level of prevalence about 10 days into the pandemic. And it was because it focused all of our minds on doing the job that we had to do under unprecedented constraints for standard outpatient or gp appointments you just weren't allowed to leave your home so you had no choice but to to have a call with the healthcare professional remotely Uh, and so we suddenly discovered that you could (laughs) overcome those what were otherwise really difficult constraints because you had no choice It focused our collective minds. There are 1.4 million brains in the NHS and it focused those minds on doing our job under the constraints of Covid. And that's why telemedicine took off massively rapidly. There were other things that it did so as well. What it really did for us as well as it helped boards recognise that they had to get involved. Suddenly digital was something. It was everyone's business. I remember at the time we thought it was a massive disaster. We let the contract two nhs providers for our digital boards offer in march 2020 and then it was like it was a collective facepalm moment it was like oh my god who's going to come on these digital development courses they have got so many operational pressures who on earth is interested and we exceeded in that first year we exceeded our hopes for the number of organizations that signed up to those training sessions those development sessions and the plan was written before covid right so yeah. But, and the reason why we exceeded it against the backdrop of no communications, there was no marketing at all for these programs. That the reason why people were signing up for it is because boards were saying, right, digital is our way out of this difficulty. We need to understand it better. Let's do that now. This is the thing we're going to prioritize. So that was the silver lining for me. It was a Wait. interesting and difficult time, but it had a, a massive, unexpected impact on people's yeah. recognition of digital being a potential solution to problems
1: i mean to be fair maybe i'm being harsh here james but going back to the whole 10 days into the pandemic you might be um, sort of exaggerating that, but the sort of juxtaposition between the um what was it predicted 2030 versus 10 days into the pandemic yeah. that's Quite a stark difference. Does that not really imply a problem with the bureaucracy of the NHS to a certain point? If you can achieve obviously under extreme circumstances, but if you can achieve something so much quicker than anticipated, is it, maybe an underlying
0: problem somewhere? Yeah, yeah. If there wasn't a problem, we wouldn't need to train anyone. Yeah. If everyone was behaving in exactly the right way and doing exactly the right things, then there wouldn't be a need for any of the work that I'm doing around digital education. But articulating it as a problem is being over-simplistic, perhaps. So there are reasons why we've got systems that do what they do. You know, we design yeah. them for that intentionally or unintentionally. I said at the beginning that part of the definition of digital and part of digital maturity is having an organisation that gets the right balance between an, 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 an organisation that is innovative and able to adopt change rapidly and one that is safe. Now, in health and care and in public sector, and we're a double whammy, there is a need for accountability, for transparency. We need to show our thinking and working and we need to be accountable for that to the public. And more importantly, in health and care, which is the most dangerous industry in the world. Let's not forget that. When you make the wrong change, people can die. So we have a very sensible and learned response to change which is we need to govern it and we need to govern it well yeah but the governance processes that were appropriate in the 1950s are no longer appropriate we cannot be both rapid in our adoption of new technologies and new ways of working and heavy in our governance processes there needs to be a balance of the two and i did say this was hard but it absolutely is where boards need to make a leadership take a leadership role because it is difficult, it's brave, it requires moving decision to point of expertise rather than the point of highest seniority. It requires empowerment of multidisciplinary teams. It requires a levelling of hierarchy, something that we're not great at in the NHS. You know, we're still a very hierarchical set of institutions. And it requires working iteratively, it requires taking risks, it requires spotting when those risks are unlikely to work very, very quickly and putting a stop to them. You know, there are some areas where our governance isn't hard enough. And stopping yeah. failure is unfortunately a place where we're not great at. We have created a a governance process where it's not okay to fail. And so everything assumes success. We need to go a different route. We need to have governance routes that Kind of the assume failure, but say that that's OK as long as you spot it quickly, that reward yeah. failure quickly. That's the sort of behaviours that we want to see so that when you do get that combination of events that turns into a runaway success, you can spot it and then put all of your efforts around the ones that are going to make the biggest difference.
1: I mean, speaking of sort of I'm adopting digital technologies, I believe Health Education England recently published their AI and digital health technologies framework recently. That, I mean correct me if I'm wrong which sought to identify what like, knowledge gaps in the workforce. So from your perspective, what are the biggest knowledge gaps in the workforce? So our
0: modeling says that there are three broad gaps. And there are around three different groups in the workforce. So the first one I've talked about a little bit on this interview already, and that's uh, leadership in particular, senior leadership, the people who hold big budgets, the people who are responsible for process of how organisations work and for importantly, setting the culture in the organisation and getting that balance between innovation and governance. to be right. I've talked about that a lot. The second group is the digital data and technology crew. So out of a workforce of 1.4 million, we've got about 48,000 digital data and technology professionals in the NHS. We don't know how many we've got in social care. And those individuals need to be putting their time and efforts into supporting as many services as possible to take a service based approach to the work that they're doing. Uh, need to embed skills around user-centred design and iterative, agile ways of working and empowered multidisciplinary teams. And those central sort of centres of excellence, if you like, need to be able to develop the infrastructure that enables everyone else to do their job well. And um, we yeah. did a survey with nursing staff. About 800 nurses responded, published by the Royal College of Nursing. And what they said was to create a digitally ready workforce, a digitally ready NHS, Thanks very much for talking about your fancy, shiny stuff like AI that did use the phrase shiny. There are really only four things that we need you to provide. So and this was aimed at the digital data and technology professionals. Can you please give me a device, modern day device? You know, one with a camera and stuff. Can you please give me connectivity no matter where I am? If I'm a nurse doing domiciliary visits, I need uh, connectivity in the home. Can you find a way of getting me connectivity wherever I am? I need to be connected through my device at all times to a decent electronic patient record. A decent record of who patients are, what they need, what they have, any specific things about them, and enable me to update that record because that is my lifeline it's it's the customer relationship management database for the nhs and then finally and this was the really interesting one can you please stop writing policies that prevent me from using the first three to their full advantage and so if i describe all of those things of the infrastructure you know i I need connectivity i need a decent device i need decent technology i need to be able to do my job well just let me do my job well and let me improve the service I provide. Let me and my team improve the service that, that I provide. That's what digital data and technology professionals need to do. And at the moment, our DDAC workforce, within the environment set by our senior leaders, is still quite controlling. So you will typically find a CIO that controls all of the digital budget within a, an NHS trust. And that means that you can only work at the speed of that person's bandwidth, which is... um yeah going to be increasingly limiting. The third group is the wider workforce, the 1.4 million. If you can equip people with the right kit, the right data, the right tools, they need two additional things in order for them to use those to genuinely get more value. The first is they need to have the right digital skills. They need to have the capabilities to be able to take what you have given them and turn that into more value for service users more quickly. Because remember, that is our ultimate goal for all of this. More value, more quickly. And to do that is a little bit about technical skills, I need to be trained in how to use the electronic patient record or how to use the device. That's fine. But they vary massively from site to site. That's not something that we can really do centrally. That is always going to be a role of local organisations whilst there is. Disparity in how we support people with tools and kits. There's also change management processes, agile approaches, you know, philosophies around how you measure performance, how you measure value to your end users, how you identify the right skills you might need in your team. What is a multidisciplinary empowered team in the 21st century? And how do you create those sorts of things? All of that sort of stuff I class as digital capabilities. The other Mm -hmm. thing those individuals have is the right digital attitude. They need to want to make changes to their services that is hugely influenced by the culture within an organization you've got to be told it's okay to make changes and encouraged to make the change to the services that you are offering if you are going to take an electronic patient record and a bunch of other kit that your cio and their team gives you and genuinely add value the biggest reason why digital projects fail digital initiatives fail and 70 percent of them do The biggest reason is cultural issues. And the biggest cultural issue is the breakdown between different silos. And this most often manifests when you give someone a really nice piece of kit and they do their job the way they've always done, just using a digital tool instead, which often adds more time, creates more harm and doesn't realise in adding more value because no one has to coin Bob Wachter's phrase, no one's reimagined the work. So we need to create an environment where 1.4 million people within multidisciplinary teams are able to reimagine their work.
1: It of these digital skills and maybe pivoting slightly. Like the future workforce, there's lots of workforce issues going on in the HS at the moment, of course. There's the strikes, there's the 130,000 vacancies, I still believe, at the moment. If you're maybe, say, a teenager looking to get into the health sector or a middle-aged person looking to have a career change, How important are these digital
0: skills in doing that? The WACTA review identified that I think it was 95% of the health and care workforce will need digital skills to some extent by 2030, I think it was. So, yeah, pretty darn important is the answer. But this isn't uh, a standard curriculum. This isn't a mandated training course that everyone does. And suddenly they're digitally literate. Hooray. Digital literacy is unique to you. Every single individual has a different set of skills they need in order to deliver more value tomorrow than they did today. And it depends on their role. It depends on their care setting. It depends on their profession. It depends on their passion, their drive. It depends on the problems they want to solve, as well as the problems that their users are experiencing. So we are trying as much as possible to create an education environment that meets that unique learning journey need. We're getting there. So our digital literacy self-assessment toolkit, which is out, I hope, in uh, late spring, has behind it 270 learning modules you'd never expect someone to go from beginning to end on those 270 The front end is a self-assessment tool. You're asked 32 questions about where you think you are and where you think your job needs you to be. And then the tool promotes to you the learning modules out of those 270 that you most need in order to make the biggest difference in your own personal digital literacy. And that's kind of the approach I see us adopting in the Digital Academy going forward. More bite-sized learning, more personalized learning, learning journeys that are really focused on delivering impact rather than nice to know stuff and so we can deliver the biggest bang for buck with the uh, taxpayers money that we
1: have in terms of the nhs how important is it getting the younger people into the nhs into the health sector and getting Mm -hmm. on board how important is that in general so
0: health and care employ one person in every 10 in this country it's the biggest single employer in the uk we have specific workforce plans for all clinical staff, because we're, if not a sole employer, with a major employer for those roles. You can't keep a machine like the NHS running without a really good recruitment practice. You need to be able to recruit people into the NHS all the time. Every year we've got people leaving. Every year we've got demand. Every year we need new people joining. And so getting people actually regardless of their age, but in particular people straight out of university or straight from school is really, really important. Within the digital agenda, we've been doing work with university technical colleges and in collaboration with a company called Avado, who run a fast futures programme to support school leavers and graduates into the NHS with digital skills. So we've been supporting them with the digital skills that they may need in uh, health and care jobs in the future. One of the great things, of course, about health and care is that it's the easiest altruistic argument to make. I mean, Where do you want to come that saves lives? Let's go work for the NHS. So if that's the sort of thing that your listenership is interested in and they're not yet a health and care employee, come and join us. We need you and we want you. That said, we don't always make it as easy. So typically my digital data and technology friends who do not work in the NHS will have a sub week turnaround between applying for a job and being in a job. You know, they'll apply on the Monday, have the interview on the Tuesday or Wednesday, have notification on Thursday and maybe start on Friday or or Monday week. It's really, really quick. And we need to massively speed up and simplify the approach around recruitment if we want to try and compete in that market. Having said that, overall we have about a 7.5%, 7.2%, 7.5%, somewhere around there, vacancy rate for DDAT professionals in the NHS, which is comparable with wider industry. It's 7.5% for DDAT professionals in the private sector, which means our overall rewards package, including the recruitment experience, gives you about the same pulling power as private sector. And we do pay less. Not hugely, that's about 10% less on average, but we do pay less. So overall, the rewards package in the NHS is about the same as the private sector. It'd be great if we could tip the balance in our favour, though.
1: Absolutely. Back to what we mentioned right at the start with health education being absorbed by NHS England. By the time people listen to
0: this, I will be in NHS England.
1: What will that change for you? What will that change for the NHS? How does that whole automation work?
0: I've made no secret of the fact that I want to consolidate my efforts around the digital skills development of the health and care workforce. I believe there will be a digital academy in the new NHS England, and I believe it will need a leader. And I'm hoping that will be my job. It mean I'll leave the chief digital information officer role title behind, I'm afraid, which is a great title. But yes. But, I, I want to follow my passions, Louis, and that's where I want to be. The opportunity of moving HE into NHS England is that we've suddenly become the main commissioner for the NHS. You know, there are levers that NHS England has that Health Education England just simply doesn't have. It also brings together the thinking around the long term workforce needs and the short term operational demands, which means for the first time there should be a, you know, a single workforce plan for health and care that is the short, medium and long term, which is a tremendously exciting opportunity see. So I have to say I'm a little bit nervous about moving into a larger organisation and therefore the, the impact that that might have on my ability to get stuff done. But I think that the opportunities vastly outweigh the risks.
1: Because what would you say the, opportunity the main
0: opportunities are? So the biggest opportunity is bringing together short and long-term operational and strategic planning for the workforce so you can have affordable workforce plans for the NHS. I think in my work, it means that I can bring the work around education together with colleagues in NHS England who are responsible for building capacity in digital data and technology professions. So the work led by Yinka McKinday and team in NHS England under Sonia Patel. We already work extremely closely together, but moving into a single organisation will do nothing but strengthen that bond, I think. You've been listening to the Finger on the Pulse podcast from the National Health Executive. Don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you receive every new edition.